Welcome, welcome to season two of Lawyers Are Assholes, a podcast which holds lawyers, prosecutors, and judges accountable for being idiots, or as we like to call them here, assholes. With our first episode of season two, I want to highlight what's coming up, what we're going to do a little bit different from last year, but I also want to talk about my favorite subject, me, uh, including being called a son of a bitch by President Joe Biden. Now, I actually sold that stole that line from Keith Olbermann, the favorite subject me, um, who does the most intellectual podcast on the market. I know some of my uh, friends uh, do not care for Keith, but you got to give him credit for the quality of his podcast. But I want to give you my story. I want to provide some background, which might give you a perspective as to why I'm doing this podcast. But first, let me explain to you the delay in launching season two. Uh, I'm a plaintiff. I'm a plaintiff in a five-year-old lawsuit where I sued two people for defaming me. Now, the case is still pending, which I can't go into the detail I will, which might be an entire season after five years. Uh, but other than to tell you that um, we're on the fifth, uh, we're on my, the fourth judge. We're on the fourth judge after an aborted trial last fall. And uh, I was focused on that on that trial, but we had, when I say an aborted trial, because there's no correct legal term, uh, because it's a civil case, and it was declared a mistrial in a, uh, erroneously by this judge, Dale Crawford, which I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, today. But we had some jury uh, issues. We had uh, we used our t- alternative uh, jurors, got sick, and then uh, we were left with the original eight jurors, and one of the jurors couldn't stay awake. I mean, literally could not stay awake. So let me give you a teaser about this uh, Dale Crawford. This guy, if you mention in this jurisdiction in Franklin County, Ohio, and you mention uh, Dale Crawford, you will get, uh, I mean, I can't even, I, I don't even have all the adjectives. I don't have all the negative descriptions. One can subscribe to to one human being, but every lawyer, anybody this guy has ever touched in his entire career hates him. I mean, he's just the most arrogant asshole uh, on the planet. I, I I can't even overemphasize how arrogant he is. And, and, and he's a little bit dangerous because he's not as, uh, he's a little smarter than, than most of the, of the judges, but uh, he is never wrong. He is, he's one of those guys that, that walks out with his chest puffed. And, and I think that he, I really do believe he tells the bailiffs or wherever he's at to uh, call his name out like like he's a king walking out. It's just, it's almost hilarious. But the guy, I think he's 80 now, and uh, he was a visiting judge, the, the uh, third judge on my uh, five-year uh, adventure. But this guy actually swore me in as a lawyer in, in chambers. Let me tell you a little how this works. The process in Ohio is that once you get your bar results, 
you got to wait two, three, four weeks and have a swearing-in ceremony. But there is a procedure that a common pleas judge can swear you in. So I'm actually in a trial, and I'm sitting at a council table, uh, knowing that I was a lawyer that had already taken the bar exam, waiting my results, and, and it was a felony trial, my uh, first real trial sitting at at council table. And I had actually known, there was a chief justice in Ohio named Celebrezzi, well, his son was in my class, my law school class. And about a week before the bar results came out, he kept call, he called me like three times in a row and kept calling me a counselor. And I couldn't figure out what the hell he was talking about, but he was able to to actually, sure, either illegally or unethically get access to the the list of those who passed the bar exam. So, which was great because you're sitting on pins and needles um, the entire time uh, when you're waiting. You know, you think you pass, you you're, you do well in law school, you feel good, but you never know. You never know until you get that call. Well, I had it a week early, but normally. Uh, the procedure back then is that you you could there was a number you would call and they would say yes or no whether you passed the bar exam. So I had that advantage. But but anyway, when the official results came out, I was in this trial and uh, the lead lawyer Jerry Sunbury, well respected um, Columbus lawyer, trying the case and said, "Hey, hey, judge, you you know can you uh, swear in Brett?" And he he could I did not I could do that anyway. He did the he did the uh, little swearing in and and suddenly. You know, I was a licensed lawyer. I went out. There was nothing at stake, but I actually, the day I was sworn in, I uh, examined a, a non-important witness um, because actually I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But it was a big deal. The dispatch did a nice story about it, and and I was off and and running um, as a lawyer. So anyway, I have uh, two or three cases with him, and he's just a dick. I mean, just a dick, and. And so he didn't like me. I didn't like him. Clear. I mean, it was clear, which I'm going to tell you this story in uh, a second. But so then he leaves the bench uh, for a period to go to this Toledo law firm uh, that it started in Columbus office. And the reason he wanted to make more money, um, because uh, I'm the first to tell you that, folks, the reason that we can't get quality judges in a lot of cases is that they don't make enough money. I mean, it's good living, don't get me wrong. But, you know, and just in today's numbers, you know, do you want to, you know, make a base salary as a judge at 120, I think at the municipal level, 140, 150, or do you want to be in a, a in a law firm, partner in a law firm making 500 grand? I mean, pretty easy choice you know, economically if you want to take care of your family and, and live a little bit better. So he left. He left for the money. He thought he was uh, underpaid and unappreciative. Of Corey Wood, uh, of course, he would. So the first thing he does, which will tell you what a narcissist and 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 and, and maybe just a dumbass, is that he tells the newspaper his salary, what they're paying him, and he was very proud of it. I can't remember what what the time the number was, but you know, I mean, it 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 was more than a judge, but it wasn't something that. It's not something that a normal person's going to go to the newspaper and say, "Hey, I'm killing it." You know, I got a two million dollar salary. I mean, it was, it was okay. It wasn't all that impressive, and he was a laughing stock. I mean, everybody was laughing about it. Now he didn't last very long because when I say everybody hates this guy, I mean everybody. And my guess is, and I don't know the my solid. Uh, guest about the farm on is that, that he couldn't keep clients or he couldn't get a client because nobody likes him. Nobody nobody's referring him cases. No former lawyers that practice in front of him is 
referring him any cases because they don't like him. Why would they want to do anything anything for him? But I, I do have this this one this one story, and I'm going to preface this by saying, again, how lucky I have been in my life to acquire a few material things. And I was dumb enough to, and, and I think I've only done this one time in my entire life, is that I bought a new car off the lot and paid retail for it, not considering depreciation, but I, but I bought the Porsche Cayenne when it came out. And I think I did a big contract and I could... It was fortunate enough to be able to to afford it. So, I, I mean, literally the, the the day after I pick up this car, I go to the Starbucks that, by the way, this judge doesn't live too far from me. And, and I'd see him occasionally and we'd just look at each other with, you know, disdain every time that I saw him. And on this particular day, he comes out, he gets, he's out out of me and he's sitting there looking at my, at my Cayenne and uh, looks at me and, and he says, uh, it looks brand new. How do you like it? And I just off the top of my head, I hated this guy so much. I said, you know, I don't even know why you're asking me that question. You can't fucking afford it. And he mutters and walks off and, and, and it was great. And that was my last interaction to him until he suddenly becomes appointed as a judge in my case and, and was concerned about it, almost almost considered, actually talked with my counsel about filing a motion for disqualification, which that's an entire different subject that we're going to talk about someday. But in Ohio, if a lawyer files a motion that has to be done with the Supreme Court to remove a judge from the case for bias, this, this statistic will just blow your mind. It just For every hundred lawyers that file a complaint against a judge with the Supreme Court in Ohio, and I know this for a fact because I did the public record request, less than 1%, not less than, but 1% of those applications for disqualification are granted, 1% which means that the Supreme Court says that there's no, I mean, a hundred lawyers don't file biased complaints against judges willy-nilly. And and again, it's the Supreme Court protecting these judges. Now, you understand why, I mean, there is a, some rationale for you, you can't grant everyone because you know, if you want to get rid of a judge, you can't just go judge shop. But so many of these just uh, have absolute merit, but I'm not going to get uh, I'm not certainly me, given my relationship with the with the Supreme Court. They're not going to grant a motion for disqualification um, based on even this long history and the fact that you know I've I've embarrassed them. But anyway, we're gonna when this case is concluded, we're gonna get a couple lawyers in here and we'll have some some great analysis about this guy. But, but anyway, back to my my favorite subject, me. So I'm born in Circleville, Ohio. This is a town about 30 miles south of, of Columbus with five brothers and sisters and, and uh, parents without high school educations. I mean, literally the first person in the extended family as far as you could go that ever went to the college, even though my parents didn't have uh, high school diplomas or GDs, they did bust their ass. Three of us ended up being lawyers, and um, although we didn't, uh, we didn't have a, a lot of uh, – a lot of resources. Uh, it was a it was a good environment, a good healthy family environment going up. But when you when you do grow up uh, without those resources, you start thinking about the injustices in the world. At least I did. So I knew in high school that I wanted to be a lawyer, not the one that I ended up being, but but one who actually could get out there and really and really help people. I went to uh, the the Ohio University. And paid for every cent myself. Then I went to law school at, at Capital University in Columbus because I was rejected by the Ohio State University. Um, and again, remember, I had I had no influential friends. My my 
my dad was a diesel mechanic. He didn't know anybody. So, you know, there wasn't any, there wasn't any help from anybody else that, that could write any letters of recommendation. And I just, I, I had no chance. And it was a, it's a, still a prestigious law school, but anyway, I got a good education capital. And, um, so I passed the bar exam and I'm out trying to save the world. I went back to my roots. I had an office here in Columbus and in Circleville. And I went down there, uh, because I had gotten to know the Judge Amer at that time, my God, I'm I'm 25, and and he's got to be close to 80. I, I uh, he couldn't get anyone to do uh, appointed cases in in Circleville. Now they paid 20 bucks an hour. I do I do remember that. And he said he said, Brad, listen, don't worry about it. All these guys are guilty. Uh, I'm going to help you learn how to practice law. And I had the greatest education. I mean, seriously, it was. It was unbelievable because I, as I'll explain, I had no, I, I really had no risk because these were in, in my 13, you know, I went over 13, all black defendants. They're coming down from Columbus. They're breaking into houses in Northern Pickaway County and they're getting charged with, with, uh, burglary, aggravated burglary. Uh, I had all white juries. I swear the average age was 80 years old. I mean, I literally got my ass handed to me. I mean, at one point, I remember one time I had a jury come back before I could walk the block to my office. And I mean, even if I was dinking around afterwards, uh, it couldn't have been more than 15 minutes. But and, and again, it was low risk because all, all these guys knew that, you know, they maybe stole, get, went in the backyard and, and stole a lawnmower. So they were getting 18 to 24 months in in uh, the Orient where it's where Pickway County, most of those low level felony offenders went. And they'd just rather st- spend the time in the Pickaway County Jail. Um, so they didn't care. So in some, I, I never lost a case where I felt my inexperience was the cause. And But I got such great uh, experience um, with Judge Amer teaching, literally walking me through the, through the case. So, But I also had an office in Columbus where I thought if I could get some criminal cases involving the OSU athletes, I could get my foot in the door. I mean, I wanted to be a sports agent. I was a frustrated athlete, never had the skill set to do, uh, still very competitive, which I'm going to, I'll tell you the Isaiah Thomas story. But so I got my chance when three OSU wrestlers were arrested for stealing street signs in Upper Arlington. And they charged them with, with felonies. can't remember the monetary value at the time, but they take that stuff pretty seriously in Upper Arlington, and um, it, it, it was overcharging. And these were all American wrestlers. These were, I mean, these were pretty, you know, well-known guys. And um, so here I had some pretty high-profile clients. Now, the, it was on the front page because of who the cli- uh, who the uh, the defendants were. And I immediately uh, bitched in the in the paper about overcharging these guys and ruining their lives with, with felonies at 18, 19, 20 years old. And it worked for me because there was a ground swell of support saying, you know, why are you, why are you charging these guys with felonies? So it was more, uh, in my first big case like that, more of a high profile case, it was more public pressure, not my, my legal acumen that got these kids into a, a diversion program and, and out with clean records. So I had a little bit of rank, uh, name recognition. There were a couple of basketball players that got into some trouble. And suddenly I was the go-to guy if an athlete got in trouble. And one of those athletes, uh, one of the basketball players, was a teammate of Jay Burson. And if you're a basketball fan, you'll remember 
Uh, Jay was the all American. I'm just a fantastic guard at Ohio State that broke his neck in in Iowa. And this was uh, obviously in, not it didn't end his career, but it was a situation where he couldn't. You know, nobody was going to take a draft uh, choice with him. But anyway, I knew Jay, but I'm still in this catch twenty two situation where I had I, I didn't have a client. I mean, who you know who am I going to say I represent? Because even today. Even today, it is about who you represent. Now, you know, I got to the point that I had some big name clients and, and you know, I didn't have to recruit as hard. But at this point, I had no clients. You know, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Um, you know, the sports agents, it's starting out at that point. There was nobody from Columbus, Ohio being in the sports world. I mean, it's New York, LA, Chicago. But anyway, so Jay, or I should say Jay's father, is the one that took a chance on me. And I remember uh, Jim Burson saying, I know you don't know what you're doing, but I trust you. I trust you with my son's career. And uh, a lot of times the the parents or the influential people uh, will be the key into whether you're going to represent that client. So at that time when Jay was not uh, drafted, I mean, there were 28 teams in the league at that point, and, and almost um, every team wanted Jay to come to their summer camp. You know, he was a uh, you had a lot of film on him. He was a good player, but nobody knew. I mean, you break your neck. I, I mean, n- nobody knew. Even though the medical diagnosis was good, there was still some uncertainty on whether he could play or not. So, so you know, I'm just I'm I'm talking to every human. Listen, I haven't had a player at this point. So you know, I'm working my ass off to, you know, I'm I'm picking up the phone and calling agents that I don't know that did more experience to to really uh, learn the ropes and it, and it worked out. So I. The first team that we went to was Detroit, and it one of the greatest experiences of my life because we were able to go and we played two on two. It was uh, with Jay, uh, it was Jay and Isaiah Thomas and, against me and Joe Dumars, and and I say this affectionately, but Jay is the most competitive asshole basketball player in the entire planet because even when I played with him, we we literally I, I we've gotten got into fisticuffs before because he's so competitive. Now, you know, he's twenty times my athleticism and, and, and he would just, he would just, it was unbelievable. But anyway, so I had that experience. And then, and then the next day we went to Houston and, and Houston was always our number one priority because Houston had two guard, two of their starting point guard or point guard and shooting guard were suspended for drug use. And that was probably the best opportunity for Jay to, to make a team. So uh, we go to summer camp and, uh, during the summer camp, when they're bringing players in and out, usually you know you're doing a, a, a morning session or early afternoon and evening session. Jay, this is the first competitive basketball that Jay has really played since he recovered from the the, the neck injury. I mean, serious neck injury with a halo, the the whole shooting match. So uh, Jay plays 20 minutes of the best basketball in the history of basketball. I can't even. I'm, it was unbelievable. I mean, he was. He was Michael Jordan, and there's no exaggeration with that. And so Jay, Jay's at the training facility. So Jay's dad and I go to lunch, and and I say, Mr. Burson, let's not let him play anymore. I mean, we're gonna go, we're gonna go to Boston the next day. Now, you know, we use the excuse that he was, you know, again hurt. Not now. I don't know, you know, if that was. You can judge the morality of that I look at it, and maybe it's rationale, but it was, uh, it was to get the best deal for my client. And I didn't want him to go play another 20 minutes and, you know, look like shit. So in some, the the assistant GM and the Rockets and I went to dinner that night 
I leveraged the fact that we had to go to Boston the next day. We couldn't stay any longer. And so short story, we negotiated the first free agent guaranteed deal in, in Houston Rocket history where they actually guaranteed money. Because back then they didn't guarantee money like they do today. I mean, getting a guaranteed uh, deal on on anybody coming into a camp was just unheard of. But so then the suspended guards get reinstated. Uh, Jay was cut before the season, but he did bank um, all of that initial guaranteed money. And you know, I felt like in hindsight, I I did a fairly decent job. So so with Jay, you know, I suddenly had a, a client, and I was officially. A sports agent, you know, at 28, 29, I could get more. You know, I had 30 players in my roster, most in the minor leagues, but but building the practice. I'm 28 years old. I spend 200 nights in a hotel uh, with a one-year-old at home. But, you know, I had the youth, the energy, best time, best time of my, my life. And, it was, again, it was, it was when you're flying around the country before 9-11. I remember taking red-eye backs uh, from the West Coast and, and having an, a one-fourth filled airplane and three seats where I could lay down and go to sleep. I mean, it's just a different time. But but a couple years, you know, I'm, I'm having a good time. I'm, I'm making a couple dollars. And the reality started setting in uh, where uh, players started demanding money uh, for you to represent them. As a lawyer, you can't pay players or offer them an inducement because it creates a conflict. And think about it: if you, you know, if you go pay a guy fifty grand, you want to get your fifty grand back, so you might make a decision that's in your interest as opposed to the player's interest. So understand that. But you know, you can't compete as a lawyer when you've got these non-lawyer agents, you know, going around and and offering a you know a big chunk of, of money. So what I learned and what I was thinking was, and you, in, in representing players, you develop relationships with coaches and broadcasters like Dan Patrick or Keith Olbermann who came to Columbus to interview Jay Burson after the neck injury. You develop these relationships. So my transition from players really started with coaches and broadcasters. You know, I got at my first real break. You know, I'm representing um, NBA coach George Carl, who was a coach in the Seattle Supersonics, Chris Spielman who I've represented for 30 years, who started broadcasting um, here in Columbus, Ohio. But then, you know, once you represent more of nationally known players, then you end up with coach, you know, I represented Terry Stotts, John McLeod, Dennis Johnson. Um, if you're a basketball fan, you'll know who all those players are. But what that did was, and I'll go back to the fun part of this thing, because there is some pressure in negotiating some of these contracts. Don't, don't get me wrong, but you know, that, you know, I represent George. We get an invite. I can't remember how we got the invite, but I'm in Portland at Nike's headquarters, the 92 Dream Team, and I'm sitting here with dinner with Barkley and Scotty Pippen and Stevie Urkel, and I'm thinking, man, I'm feeling pretty good coming from that that trailer and uh, feel like I'm I'm really made it. But I'll tell you, in all honesty, I, I then I didn't think my shit uh, stank. So I, which in hindsight was not the best personality trait. So anyway, sports have literally taken me all over the world. Your divorce lawyer is not getting a private tour of the Vatican and having dinner at an Italian villa that looks like a movie set, privately seeing the Mona Lisa, just wonderful things I've been able to experience. Or you're not going to play golf at the Hong Kong Golf Club where the initiation fee 20 years ago was a cool million. Um, and with any professional exposure, you get some celebrity non-sports clients like Ted Williams, the golden voice referred to me by Matt Lauer. We'll talk about Matt at a later date. But anyway, my kids never thought that I had accomplished anything in my life until I was on Dr. Phil with Ted Williams. Great experience. Not enough time to talk about it here. 
But lastly, about me, I want to talk about uh, my dinner with former President Donald Trump and multiple lunches with President uh, Biden, which I mean, I don't think that uh, uh, a lot of lawyers from Columbus, Ohio are going to be able to say that. But again, it's it's uh, without the sports and the entertainment law that that I've done in my life. I would have never had these opportunities. But staying out of politics, I mean, everyone says this about Donald Trump. He's not the person you see on TV, nothing close, and certainly not endorsing him with what we know now. But I got to tell you, one-on-one, man, he is, an, he is an engaging dude. Now, so the time the president of the United States called me a son of a bitch, take it back to where when George Carl was coaching the Milwaukee Bucks, the Milwaukee Bucks, the NBA team, the owner was uh, Herb Cole, uh, the senator from Wisconsin. And you may relate the Cole's name to the Cole department store that actually started as a grocery store in Wisconsin. And, and Senator Cole bought the team, one of the nicest, I mean, just the nicest human beings I've ever met in my life. And every year he would invite me to the Senate dining room, um, which again, being a political science major and, and just being in that seat of power was one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me. But he would, he would uh, take me to the Senate dining room and he would say to me, uh, Brett, if there's anybody you want to meet, again, this was, this was when senators actually talked to each other. He said, but tell me who you want to meet. He would sit near the front. And I think it was more about him sitting in the front because everybody wanted to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks because they were having great success then. And I'm meeting multiple senator after senator, and Joe Biden walks in. Senator Biden at the time walks in, and uh, Senator Cole introduces me as the guy that just took $20 million out of his pocket. It was the initial George Carl contract, and President Biden's looking at him kind of funny, and and anyway, sits down, and, and we have a great discussion, mainly about basketball, the team, and everything's fine. So so the next year I come back, I'm in the same seat, same situation. I see him walking in, and I get up to shake his hand, and he says to me, as he's looking to Herb, Senator Cole, he grabs my hand, shakes my hand, and said, Herb, I can't believe you brought this son of a bitch back here again this year. And I mean, I thought it was really funny and, and endearing. And again, stand out of politics. He, I really enjoyed his company in the multiple times that I was in that situation with him. So anyway, enough about me. So what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to start this season. You're going to hear from Matt Moore. Matt's from Westerville, Ohio. Um, just released a book about his uh, deceased wife, Emily. Uh, he was accused of murdering her by setting up uh, her suicide. But as you'll hear. When the jury isn't 10 minutes into a deliberation and all 12 of them want to acquit him on the first vote, probably prosecution that shouldn't have been undertaken. With Matt, we had to do a two-part uh, series. The first series, uh, first episode, we talk about his relationship with Emily, the history of suicides in both their families, uh, how he reported the crime, tried to locate her, uh, discovery of the body and, and the arrest. And in episode two, we talk about the process, the perp walk, his 15 months in jail, the trial and the verdict. Fascinating story, but tragic is is this literally when you're the facts could happen to to anyone. Then uh, we've got an episode where we talk to Connie Curry. She is juror number eight in Matt's case. Unbelievably, she came forward and great insight into this case and the jury process. So she's she's going to be on the podcast. Uh, if you've heard previous podcasts, you know my frustration with our domestic court system. Um, you're going to hear a story locally from a Lauren Kimmick who was abused by the system. Uh, and again, as you know, we name we name names here. And uh, 
we're going to talk about Judge Kim Brown, domestic relations uh, judge in the Franklin County uh, Court, uh, a judge who wouldn't look at her final settlement agreement because it wasn't submitted to court a day earlier so the judge could review it. But uh, the question is, how long does it take to review a six or seven page agreement with no custody or significant economic issues at all? Um, Lauren's divorce was delayed for over four months before a final decree uh, could be entered. A judge, by the way, that you'll learn that was appointed to the bench, not elected, appointed with not a day of domestic law experience. Many more surprises to come this season. Uh, we're going to try to focus uh, on solutions. We're certainly going to tell stories. We're going to bitch, but we're going to provide more show notes that that people can really, if they want to complain about these lawyers, judges, or prosecutors who abuse the system, we're going to make that available. Bottom line is strap them on because we're going to shake up a flawed legal system and be a real vehicle for change. As always, thank you for listening to Lawyers Are Assholes. Looking forward to a great season. Seventeen summers ago. Mm-hmm.